Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. I would like to hurt giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, so we continue to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information we really need to try to understand the times we live in, discern them, skip the caterwauling, get to what we ought to know so that we can understand why things are happening, not just reacting to them, which so much of social media and news media does. Let's go down to Georgia. We have four now plea deals in the books in Georgia in the Trump-related indictments down there, DA Fannie Willis's cases. Listen, these have all been plea deals so far. Three of them are attorneys, okay? The latest one, Jenna Ellis, you know her. Everybody remembers Jenna. She's the former traffic magistrate court uh, person that got fired from that job and then floated around the Fox News, and she was at Liberty University for a little while, and then she was following Rudy Giuliani around doing the election denial stuff. We see where that led her. And now we get to her pleading guilty in a tearful statement that she read while crying. Uh, She is the third attorney that has been uh, pled out now down there. That joined Sidney Powell, of course, and Cheeseboro, who I still can't believe that's his real name, but thus is thus. Cheeseboro pled out. And then there was the guy that was the bail bondsman down there. He's also pled out. Let's stick to the three lawyers, though. Some people on social media are like, well, you're too hard on Jenna Ellis. No, I'm not. Um, Jenna Ellis, if you watch her statement today and you read her statement, I'm not going to take time to read it. You can read it yourself. We'll link to it. Paraphrasing basically said, I was misled. I should have done my due diligence as an attorney. I let these other people tell me that this information was valid when it wasn't. She was basically just, you know, along for the ride and should have known better and blah, blah, blah. And she's very, very sorry as both a attorney and a Christian. The attorney and a Christian is her wording, by the way. Um, she likes to throw Bible verses all over her Twitter feed, even when she's doing things like fundraising for her legal defense fund. I don't know what her faith is. I don't care. I hope her faith is strong. Great. You know what would be great and what Jesus would really like you to do, Jenna? Jesus would think it'd be great if you didn't commit crimes. Um, Jenna Ellis is 38 years old as she stood and pled and cried in court today. For her to say she didn't know better or didn't do her due diligence is nonsense. She has the same ability to Google things that I do. She has the same ability to read things that you do. For all the millions of you across the country who did not buy into the election denialism and the kooky theories and the bad legal theories and couldn't figure out when 60-some courts all unanimously rejected all of these arguments, that lawyer-trained Jenna Ellis couldn't have figured any of this out on her own. She was misled. I think she was misled, but I don't think it was by people telling her stuff. I think she liked the fame of it. I think she liked the power of it. I think she liked being in the orbits of famous people. I think she liked the fame it brought her. I think she liked the income it brought her. I think she liked the lifestyle of being a internet and media celebrity inside of those circles. You can make a pretty good living like that, doing a very minimum amount of work. You get to go to parties at Mar-a-Lago and elsewhere. You get to rub shoulders. I think she was misled into that, and she forgot how to be an attorney if she ever really knew how to be one. That's debatable. You can Google that part, too. You know, her whole record as an attorney is on Google. You can, f- you can read about it yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. So my two hard on people like Jenna Ellis and these other people that are going to plead out, And again, is this going to lead to them flipping on Trump? I kind of doubt it because a lot of this stuff, especially the Powell and Cheeseboro stuff, this goes to the Coffee County case that you need to familiarize yourself with. There's not a direct link 
to Trump there other than it was done under Trump's auspices. But that's where they went in and physically handled election equipment and things like that. Just so blatantly breaking the law. Of course, they were going to get charged for all that. But these three attorneys, there's no way that attorneys didn't know at some point what they were doing was flat out lies. They did it anyway. So then you have to ask yourself, why did they do it? Did they do it out of loyalty for Trump? I don't think so, because they're all grifters. I think they liked the power and the money and the fame that came with it. And they thought this was going to continue the power and the money and the fame train that they were on by associating themselves with Donald Trump and his movement. And now you have the reality. Am I too hard on her and the others? No, because I'm judging off actions. Go look at the social media posts where they do all the braggadocio, all the quote in the Bible verses. I'm going to overcome this. I'm being attacked. And then watch her tearfully admit in court. By the way, this is the second time in court she's had to admit she had to do it for her disbarment. Had to admit that she lied and she didn't know what she was talking about and then claim that she was misled and didn't do her due diligence. And it's basically other people's fault. No, Jenna Ellis, we don't believe you. I don't believe you. I judge you by your actions. You tried to hang on to your fame and power by all means necessary, and you got caught. And you're not going to jail. You're going to do some community service. You're going to pay a fine. You're going to write an apology letter to Georgia. You're going to be a laughing stock to everybody but the diehard Trump faithful for the rest of your life. I hope you go and get your life together. But I doubt it because I don't think you've learned a thing and your actions prove it. And we'll see what else happens in the rest of these court cases. More Hertel right after this. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, he's been on here more than anybody else because he's pretty much one of the smartest people on the planet. Also a really nice guy. He's also really good with sci-fi movies. Go check out his YouTube channel and his day job. He's an academic with a bunch of letters after his name. He stares at the stars, but he manages to explain it to those of us down on the ground so well. Even I can understand it. He's our scientist friend, Dr. Michael Siegel. How's that for an introduction? Uh, you flatter me very much, sir. <laughs> How many times have you thought about Rome today? Uh... Only once, because uh, I'm towards the end of my game of Rome Total War. So uh. <laughs> I like the the Empire Total War, which is the Napoleonic era type stuff. I've played that one. That was a long time ago, though. I'm Showing for that sale from Steam, so I can try that one out. I have, that's the only one I haven't played. Yeah, it's pretty good. I like that one. Um, all right, you're an academic by trade. We've seen the stuff that's going on in the news. We've seen the protests on campuses, uh, Israel, Palestine, the Hamas terrorist attack. You're also one of those of our friends that light the menorah. So you're kind of in this position where you see the headlines, but you're on a college campus. That's your natural environment. Is the news media, I know we take the extremes and put them up, and it's not that it's not important to look at these things, but what do you actually see on campus? You're somebody that's faculty at one of the, if not the largest universities by student population in the country. What are you seeing on campus when you have a big world event like this that runs really hot and then the on-campus stuff starts hitting the headlines? Just what's your perspective? What are you actually seeing on the ground? 
Um, for the most part, it's been pretty reasonable. Uh, obviously, emotions are running very high because of what's going on right now. You have you know a war and people are dying and suffering and so forth. Um, but on this campus in particular, I have not seen you know violence or threats of violence or anything like that. Um, and the anti-Semitism such as this seems to be very muted. So I would say that a lot of people are emotional, a lot of people are sad, a lot of people are concerned, but I think so far it seems to be going in a reasonable direction of people expressing themselves and trying to have a dialogue and, and so forth and not so much as much anger. But that can, that my experience on campus is very limited since I don't teach, I'm not teaching right now. So, you know, other people may have a different perspective if they're on campus more often or associating with different student groups. I have a very diverse, um, just even amongst the faculty, you have a diverse group that you deal with on, you know, people, we joke about college professors. Um, I know my dad, who was a career academic, he always jokes like, hey, you're 100 level teachers are the craziest people you ever meet because they can't function in society. That's why they teach 100 level college courses. You know, we all joke about, you know, the crazy college professors. And it is a class unto itself. It is its own little ecosystem a lot. But it's also just normal people trying to get by on stuff. It's a diverse thing to deal with. Turn the noise down on that a little bit because I know it'll be different in different places, but diversity in a faculty on a college campus is a good thing despite what the internet tells us a lot of the times. How does it hold up under a pressure like this though? That's really hard to tell because uh, especially working in the sciences, you know, you have uh, people who are, who are less focused on political issues and and so forth. Not that they're ignoring them or anything like that, but it doesn't, you don't have people who's where this is their job to talk about politics, to talk about uh, overseas relations and so forth. Uh, so if you, you know, if I were in a camp, uh, Department of Middle Eastern Studies or something like that, or Department of Religion, that might be different. Um, I do think that the extremism of academia, while it's there, has a tendency to be exaggerated by the era we live in. Because in the era we live in, one professor can say something extreme, like the one who uh, I think, I can't remember what university she's at, she posted a a picture, you know, we're going to be coming for you and with a knife and blood and blood drops that can get blown up nationally. Whereas 20, 30, 40 years ago, that person would have been kind of obscure. No one would have known about it. Now they see something like that. It goes out to the whole world. It goes on the media and suddenly becomes representative of everything that's going on in academia. And certainly there are those extremes and extremists, but I think they have a tendency to out be a little bit out. Uh, seen in the media out of proportion to their actual representation on campus just because of our tendency to sensationalize that if people are expressing a reasonable point of view and having a dialogue that doesn't make the you know that doesn't trend on twitter but if someone says you know all the jews are responsible for anything israel does that does uh, show up on twitter the academic environment we talked about this a lot during covid and scientists because you is one you one of them scientist people that scientists just have not adapted well to understanding that they have to communicate to the wider audience, whether they're government scientists or whatever. There, there was a big communication problem between the experts, quote unquote, and normal folks, especially on social media and news media. That's just a fact. Whatever else you think, th there was a huge communication problem, right? Mm -hmm. I think the academic world, especially the higher education world, I think they have a lot of the same problems where yeah, they have problems on campus. There's issues. We talk about other issues that are adjacent, like student loans and things like this and diversity on campuses and the ideological bent of campuses. I think a lot of it, though, is I don't know that the insular academic world has really adjusted to the social media era where what you just said happened. We're like, well, every campus had their crazy professor that said nonsense. Just nobody knew about it except whoever took their classes. Right. Now it can go viral and the whole world finds out about it. Now your whole university looks weird because you had that one crazy professor said that one crazy thing that one time, right? Does academia have a problem where they haven't adjusted to, hey, this really insular, very exclusive club that we all belonged into? And that's what a lot of it is. Let's just be fair and be honest. When you get into those doctorate level stuff, 
our exclusive club ain't as exclusive anymore because everybody can see what we're doing all the time now. They haven't really adjusted to that, have they? Um, I think that's a fair criticism, but I, I also think that's true of society at large. That completely fair. You, that you have a tendency to the the internet has become this place where people can go and find the most extreme stupid person having a view they disagree with and say, this is who they really are. This is what they really think. And it's really not, you know, even when you're talking about people who are anti-Israel, you're talking about a fairly broad diversity of points of view of, uh, you know, ranging from, you know, harsh criticism to wanting the, the country to cease to exist and so forth. And that's just in society at large, necessarily in academia. It's also hard. I think the thing that changes is not so much, as much the faculty as the students. You know, we have, we have this ongoing controversy with these Harvard students who signed this letter uh, after the Hamas attacks and they're losing law firm uh, opportunities and so forth. And people are saying they should be blacklisted for the rest of their lives. You know, I, I'm kind of uncomfortable with that because a lot of people think college should be a place that people can explore ideas and come in with extreme ideas and learn to moderate them and learn that, oh, the world isn't as simple as I'd like it to be. And my extreme view doesn't really represent reality. And I don't, you know, I, I don't think speech should come without consequences, but I think the idea of lifelong consequences or long-term consequences for stupid things people say in college is, is a bit uh, misleading. And I think back to when I was in college and I had a lot of stupid views and uninformed views and some fairly extreme views that I've moderated over time. And I hesitate to think if, if some of those were available on the internet or if I could get on national television just by, you know, for having said something stupid freshman year when I didn't know, you know, my head from my elbow, uh, I, I sort of uncomfortable with that. So it's, I think it's less a matter of the isolation academia and more that we have the society that tries to pick out the most extreme and pushes the most extreme things. If you go on Twitter and say something moderate and reasonable, you might get like a thousand retweets. If you say something extreme, you'll get 50,000 of them. If you say something that's a lie, you might get 50,000 of them. So we, we, we have to, I think it, the burden is also on us, not just on us to, on us in academia to be the police, you know, what we say and, and express out to the world, but I think the burden is on us as a society to stop seeking out the most extreme views, to assume those views represent the majority of those who disagree with us, and to you know, not give, grant people a bit of grace in that they might be emotional, they might be not thinking, they might be just 18 years old and not thinking fairly clearly, and, and cutting them a bit of slack in saying, in saying these things and trying to more reason with people and argue with people and persuade them rather than shame them. Siegel joining us. I ask it that way because this this the chicken and the egg argument here with college students, it goes back to something. Um, I remember my father's career educator had degrees in curriculum, among other things. So he thought a lot about this kind of stuff. You know, how do you view college kids? Are they the headwaters of the next generation or is it the tide pool of what the last generation screwed up? You know, it's it's like this chicken and egg thing, right? But I think, and I'm making a joke of it, but that's it's really how you view incoming college students. Is it the what the last generation did, or is it the first of the next generation? And the answer is it's both. I know you're not teaching this semester, but you do that on purpose. You teach entry level um, of your science field every now and then, kind of keep your thumb on it. You've taught these kids. You've seen a couple different groups of them over the last few years go through. What are you seeing in college students? Is it really changing that much? Is the technology really changing them that much? Or is it just an evolution, do you think, and we're overblowing it a little bit? I think the, the main thing that strikes me about the college students I see today is that they are much more responsible and hardworking than I was at their age. The demands put on kids in high school right now are extreme, and the expectations 
for what the kind of work they will have done and the kind of preparation they will have done when they've gotten to the college is pretty intense, especially if they wanted to go to a discipline like science or medicine or law or something like that. The expectation is that they will, like in science, we have undergrads publishing first author papers, you know, which when I did as an undergrad was unusual and is now kind of expected. So the, there's greater expectations, greater maturity expected of them. And uh, and so that's probably the biggest change that I've seen over the last couple of years. And uh, this is just sort of my impression on my exp limited experience and talking to other professors. The biggest impact has been the pandemic that, you know, some of the students are doing fine, but you seem to have this tale of students who've they like they've almost forgotten how to learn. And I'm hoping over time, the effects of the pandemic and the homeschooling and the remote schooling will will be mitigated uh, by improved education and so forth, that the damage done will be uh, will lessen. But that's probably the biggest thing I'm noticing in the last couple of years. Michael Siegel joining us. It, I just thought of it while you were talking about that. You know, you talked about it a minute ago. Part of college is, you know, radicalizing the moderates and modernizing the radicals, right? You're trying to you're trying to get a balance on some of this stuff. Something like Israel and the Hamas attack and the Palestinian issue, which has been going for decades and doesn't have a good clean answer, and we our grandchildren will probably be arguing over it as well. It's kind of the perfect problem to analyze the college student because, you know, somebody like me, I'm looking at it as like a foreign policy problem on a, on a large scale. Well, we got terrorism, we got nation building, we got nationalism, we got, you know, those kind of big worldview kind of stuff. You're a Jewish person. It's probably a little more personal for you because it's Israel, it's religion, it's that story, it's your people. A college student may be looking at it as just an academic exercise, but the point of a college student is to get all those viewpoints and try to put it into some kind of a package where they see it from those multiple angles. We don't really talk about education in that way of, hey, here's this breaking event, but there's like these eight different tendrils to it because the professors have biases, the kids have biases, the school has an institutional bias. Why don't we talk about education in those ways? I mean, I know it's messy and it's easier to just, you know, put out a curriculum and say, hey, you're going to learn this. But that's not what you really learn. You learn all that stuff and it's all these different streams going into this one little funnel. I think uh, this is a great opportunity to for people to demonstrate that uh, the need for people to think outside of their ideological boxes. One of the things that was a problem in the early discussion of this Hamas situation was that a lot of people, including a lot of students, sort of went to these ideological priors that Palestinians are the oppressed, so anything they do is okay. Israelis are the oppressors, so anything that happens to them is okay. Or, you know, the Israelis are colonizers. You know, that's a big word on the on in certain uh, lefty circles. You know, I, you know, they're colonizers, decolonization. But that doesn't really apply here because a third of the Israelis are Jews that were booted out of other countries in the Middle East and had nowhere else to go. They weren't, they didn't come there from Europe. So I think that this is a situation where people's immediate reaction is to go to their easy ideological priors of thinking in terms of oppressor and oppressed and colonization and this and that and the other thing. And no, it's actually more, we have an opportunity to say, no, it's actually more complicated than that. You need to engage this issue on a deeper level to think about the history, to think about what has gone on here, what has happened over the last 20 years, especially where you go from this point, what the actual practical realities of the future are, what can be accomplished within this. Michael Siegel joining us. One of the tough parts of this too is the terminology. You just mentioned it. You know, we want to lump Palestinians and together, but Gaza is a very different situation than the West Bank has right now, even though they're all Palestinians, two very different situations. You have Hamas, you have the PLO, different situations, but we lump it all together. A lot of people are lumping Hamas and the Palestinians together. You can't really do that, although I understand they're the civic authority, but you can't really do that. One of the really sticky things I've noticed watching this, and you can help me with it, how much do you put the Israeli government the civil government, the country, the nation, and the Jewish people broadly together, because a lot of people use those interchangeably. 
you should be able to criticize the Jew, the Israeli government without being like, oh, well, you hate all Jewish people. Well, no, I'm talking about the Israeli government, the elected government. It's a mm -hmm. civic organization. People have a lot of trouble with that, and people interchange those terms. How do you break that down as somebody of that community, though? Because, again, people will use them badly that way. They'll use it for a good point that way, and it's not really a fair way to look at the problem or look at the people. Yeah, I think it is very important that you make those kind of distinctions. Like, you know, you can say, I despise the Iranian government, but I like Iranian people, which is which is true. I think the Iranian government is completely oppressive, but every Iranian person I've met is, is has been great. You can say, I despise the Chinese government, but I, I don't hate the Chinese people. During the Cold War, we talked about that, that we like the Russian people, but we despise the Soviet Union government. I think it, you know, Israel's government is not as extreme as those or as, as authoritarian or, or uh, repulsive as those, but you can say there's a lot of people who like Americans and dislike the American government because of what we do. I think it's very important that you separate out being able to criticize the Israeli government and uh, disliking Israelis or Jews in general. Now, the Venn diagram of people who criticize the Israeli government and are anti-Semitic does overlap. There are a lot of people for whom the Israeli Israel's conflicts with other countries is sort of a proxy for them to be able to get out their anti-Semitism or express their anti-Semitism. That's absolutely true. But I do not try, I try not to assume that if someone's criticizing Israel's actions, that that makes them hate Jews, because I'm, I'm critical of some of Israel's actions. I don't support them on everything they do. And I'm obviously not anti-Semitic. But I also think, you know, the flip side of that is what you said about Hamas in Palestine. You can criticize Hamas and say that Hamas needs to be destroyed while simultaneously sympathizing with the Palestinian people and their plight and thinking that they deserve a country of their own and uh, and don't deserve what is happening to them. In fact, I think if you sympathize with the Palestinian people, you should despise Hamas more than anyone else because they're the ones that are making things more miserable, creating more suffering and devastation in Palestine than anyone else. But also, if you broaden that perspective to all Palestinians, that means you can see that this isn't just an Israel problem. You can look at Syria, where Assad has attacked and murdered Palestinian refugees. You can look at the past of Jordan, where they occupied the territory that was supposed to be Palestinians. Now they've gotten much better. Many of the Palestinian refugees are naturalized citizens. You can look at, you can criticize Egypt. They have a closed border with Gaza as well. So when you sort of separate out governments and people, that gives you that broader perspective so you can see the plight of the people, you can sympathize with the people, you can like the people or whatever, while still saying, I don't like what the authority is doing. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel, let me ask you this. Um, how's it playing inside of the community? Like we, we covered things like the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, which was terrible. And of course, that's on American soil, so it hits a little closer to home, that sort of stuff. Every one of my Jewish friends that I've talked to, and I've talked to a few of our friends in Israel over things like WhatsApp and things like that, just checking in. Every single one of them say, this is just different. This just feels different. This is hitting different. I talked to a friend of mine in Germany who's not even Jewish, but he just said the German people who are very sensitive to this stuff, they're like, it's playing very differently here, this attack. And that's a country, I bring that up because I live there. They have armed polizei outside every synagogue, every you know Friday and Saturday and every high holiday. I, it's one of those things growing up, first time I saw it, it just kind of shocked me coming from America. You don't expect that. And like, wow, okay. feels very, very different. Does it? Is a watershed different moment. For the Jewish people. Yeah, I would say this definitely hits different. It was shocking, not only the nature and scale of the attack by Hamas, but the fact that so many people expressed support for the attack, not support for the Palestinians once the Israelis began to retaliate, but support for Hamas and the Palestinians after that attack. You know, there was um, Black Lives Matter Chicago tweeted out a picture 
of a paraglider with a Palestinian flag saying, you know, saying we support them. And it was just, it was shocking. And, you know, the, you know, the sort of worldwide protests in favor of Hamas were really, was really shocking. So, um, I, you know, we've focused a lot and you and I talked about a year ago, I think about the, uh, anti-Semitism we've been seeing in some of the parts of the extreme right to see it on the extreme left, I think took a lot of people by surprise and is, uh, and is quite frightening to a lot of people. I'm not particularly my, myself. I'm not particularly scared right now, but I live in a pretty safe area, but I do know a lot of people are worried about going to synagogue. A lot of synagogues are hiring extra security to make sure they get through this. Um, so there is definitely that concern within the community. But I think it was more the shock of the event. I mean, this was the deadliest attack on Jews since the Holocaust, basically. And the the, the second shock of seeing how many people expressed either support or didn't seem to think that this attack was something to uh, lament too much. Hmm. Lament's an important word there, but we'll get into that some other day. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, let me round this back off where we started with the college stuff. When folks see the headlines about a college protest or like the Harvard letter or some of the professors who have said some stuff that may or may not have been taken out of context but went viral, what's the proper place for on-campus speech, whether it's a student and or professor? Because, it, again, it's its own little ecosystem. I try to usually take the thing of, you know, this this isn't, you know, reflective of the wider thing. College is its own environment. Higher ed's its own little environment. What's the proper perspective when something goes viral, whether it's this or something else, off a college campus? Because I know a lot of people make a lot of hay and a lot of noise and a lot of engagement off. Campuses are going to destroy America. I don't think that's true, but I do think it's a heightened different level of reality because it is a little insular. What's the proper perspective to put it in? Because I think we're overvaluing those viral videos a little bit too much right now. Um, yeah, I would agree with that, that we we tend to, again, focus on the extremes. I mean, college should be a place for people to explore ideas, even really bad ideas. You don't want to romanticize bad ideas or unpopular ideas by saying you are not allowed to say this you are not allowed to think this you are not allowed to read this and uh, a lot of people specifically you know, I know you know i've read a lot really recent written recently by greg lukianoff who's head of the fire have talked about how we need to foster an environment where people can feel comfortable expressing extreme ideas but at the same time, that doesn't mean that we accept the extreme ideas or we don't acknowledge that they are extreme or we don't push back on them. It means we allow people to say what they're thinking and then engage with them in dialogue and say, no, this is why you are wrong. This is why this is uh, we disagree with you. This is why this is the kind of view that we kind of frown upon that. You know, this is these are the consequences of these kind of words, these kinds of thoughts. This is why these kind of uh, expressions are stupid. But we don't silence people. We engage. You know, the the cliche is the best response to bad speech is more speech. And I tend to think that is true, especially on a college campus, that the reasonable people, the moderates, the people who have nuanced and informed points of view need to do a better job of expressing themselves and not letting the crazies outshout them. Yeah. Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Okay. Let's have some fun. I promise you some science stuff. You have a wonderful YouTube channel that I just love to death. I asked you for it. I asked for the science of the titanium and the iPhone commercials where they have the chanting and the rock coming from the edge of space. And I'm like, what in the world is it? The <laughs> iPhone commercial and the titanium. That's one of your recent videos. Uh, you also did the limb, the lunar uh, modular, which I just love that because it's, I love big, ugly pieces of technology. They're really cool. A10s, lunar modules. I'm all in on all that kind of stuff. Um, we both did stuff on Armageddon recently. Just tell people about your channel for a second because I'm having a blast with it. And I really enjoy it. Um, I, I sometimes talk about general science, but mostly I, I use a, uh, movies and TV, and in this case, a commercial to sort of respond to them, um, talk about 
the science that is being, uh, you know, not just to criticize, but also to talk about the science in general. So if a movie did something wrong, how could they have done it right? If a movie did it right, why did they do it right? Why do, why do we enjoy that and so forth? So uh, with the titanium commercial, you know, I said, well, titanium doesn't come to us from the edge of space. Now let's talk about where titanium does come from. And it comes from supernova explosions of dying stars. And so I was able to talk about where all the elements in our bodies come from and show this wonderful chart that explains where every element in the periodic table comes from uh, cosmologically. And so uh, that's, you know, it's, I think of it as sort of painless science lessons where we get a little bit of pop culture. I get to talk about movies and TV shows that I like or dislike. And we also get to talk a little bit about science. Yep, and we got to do that stuff because these are heavy topics, which are important. We got to do our day jobs and we have a duty to talk about that. But I love it when I can just rip on you about how awesome the documentary Armageddon is on how, you know, <laughs> Bruce Willis saved America and the rest of the world. And you try to poke holes in it with your science, fancy, dancy, you know, hoity toity, nonsense, <laughs> verbal, whatever. Um, I love Armageddon. I'm not going to apologize for it. I love that movie. Uh, Michael Siegel. Let folks know where they can find you for that more lighthearted stuff and also where you write and also cover stuff on social media when it's a more important topic like we discussed today, my friend. Uh, so uh, if you go to www.ordinarytimes.com, that's where I do most of my writing and link everything. If you go to YouTube and just type Michael Siegel Astronomy, you'll find my channel. Uh, I'm actually uh, doing a little bit more on Blue Sky these days than uh, Twitter, uh, which has become a little bit of a cesspool lately. But uh uh, you can also find me there. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's talk housing real quick. We talk about housing a lot, especially when we have economists on, things like that. It's what we do with this program. I don't know a lot about economics other than what I just read. So we get economic people to come on and explain it to me, usually like I'm five, so that we can all understand it. And they do it so well that even I can understand all those big words they're using. But something I've learned over doing media and writing the last few years is housing is immensely important to the economy. When I do some local radio, first when I first started doing stuff like this in Wilmington, I learned really fast because they did a segment every week where they had the local home builders association come in. And that's where you learn stuff like how vital home building and home prices are to a community. Did you, when you build a house, it's not just the contractor or the developer or whoever. It takes 26 separate trades to build a house, usually even more than that, but 26 separate trades. And those are usually not, you know, just the same 
four or five guys can do that. You got to bring in subcontractors. You got to bring in other people. You got to buy the materials. All those people that are working on the home is going to eat somewhere for their lunch. All of those folks have their own families to feed. Buying a house and building a house and building more houses and reselling houses is kind of a circadian rhythm underneath a lot of the rest of the economy. It can be an indicator of what's going on. That's why so many economists keep track of what's going on with the buying and selling of homes and especially the building of homes, because that's a huge indicator of where people think the economy is going to go in the future, because those are investment properties. And when they stop building houses, people are worried about the future. When people are building a lot of houses, they're bullish on the future. You kind of see how these things work. Headline in NBC. Quoting the headline, saving money to buy a house, question mark. Good clickbait there. Your dollar goes half as far as it did at the end of 2020. New data shows. Now, what does this have to do with, you know, things with housing? Well, a couple things have happened. Inflation has gone up. Remember, 2020 was when we got into the teeth of the COVID mess and a lot of people had economic disruptions to their homes and lives and things like that. There's something else going on here, though. Now that the interest rates have come up, and we've talked about this on the program before, but I just want to reiterate it. Look, I'm a homeowner. The value of my home has gone up greatly over the last few years, immeasurably so. I can make a very good profit on selling my home right now. But I don't want to do that for a couple of reasons. One is I don't want to move anymore. I'm tired of moving. I want to do one more move and be done, which I said when I moved in this house. But anyway, I don't want to sell. And a lot of people that own homes have the same problem I have. I could make a great amount of money on selling my home. The problem is with interest rates going on, the next home I purchase will cost me a whole lot more money in interest rates over a long period of time. If you're doing like a 30-year interest rate and you have somewhere, folks like me who bought a home several years ago, and you've got a really good mortgage rate, you know, right around that 3% mark, let's say, because that's where the real good lending got down to. A lot of, some people got sub three, some people were a little over three. That's a really good interest rate. I remember when I bought my first house back in the 2000s, I was at like six and six and three quarters, I think, something like that. And that was a banging interest rate when it was around seven was the average. So these folks that have that right around 3% interest rate, you're more than doubling your interest rate costs over the cost of your home. That's tens of thousands or more dollars that it's going to cost you to buy a new home. That makes people not want to sell their homes. So a lot of people with the prime homes and the prime real estate aren't going to want to sell right now because if they go to something else as their primary home, it's going to cost them a lot of money. Same thing with developers, not as bad, but they have to think about these concerns too. What that does is it compresses everything because now there's less homes for sale, but there's more demand, but the homes are worth more. You can see how this becomes a Rubik's Cube for the economists to play with of how the economy works. Inflation, as we've talked about, affects everybody, but this isn't just an American problem. Having affordable housing, making more housing, having more housing available to more people is very important to not only the economy, but the people. Think about it this way. A house can be a building block to financial security because if you have a home, let's say your parents pass on a home to you. Well, you can either keep it, you can sell it, you can live in it. It's probably paid off. So that would mean you wouldn't have a mortgage. You would have upkeep costs and things like that. That could be a financial stability building block. That can be a form of generational wealth, passing a home down generation to generation. That's a big part of the economy and personal economy and personal finances for people because it gives them a great deal of stability. So the reason it's such a big deal, especially for these first-time home buyers, that post-college cohort, you know, 25 to 30 to 35, that, that age bracket, when you should be earning enough money to purchase a home or to rent and you just can't because you can't find one or it's not affordable, it sets you back in that financial planning. So when you see headlines like this, there's layers to it. But one of the reasons we harp on affordable housing and housing policy and paying attention to the economics of housing is it tells you so much about not just where the economy is now, but where it's going. This rising generation having a hard time buying a home means it puts them behind on financial planning for other things. It means that you have other issues going on. 
And these are an example of a headline where you have to pay attention to it and understand there's a lot more going on underneath. All of our UK friends and contributors that we've had, especially the Young Voices kids, which are all, I shouldn't call them kids, but I'm getting old enough to do it. The Young Voices folks that are all college or post-college, every single one of them talk about housing. They're having trouble finding housing. They're having trouble finding jobs. They're having trouble getting those basic building blocks to starting your own life and career. I can pull up headlines in Germany. Germany's having housing problems now. Canada is having a massive housing crisis. It's so bad. A lot of those HGTV shows we used to like, you know, Love It and List It and those, they used to shoot those in Canada. They had to start shooting them in the States because people in America couldn't figure out why those, you know, regular size houses were costing $800, $900, million. They're like, why? So they came down and started shooting it in Raleigh so you could get some comparable prices for the American audience. The Canadian housing crisis is a mess. And in America, depending on where you go, you go somewhere like San Francisco where the zoning laws are so tight, it's really, really bad. I've been spending a lot of time in Atlanta lately. I've been going down there about every other weekend. One of my children's in Atlanta doing a program down there. And everywhere you go, they're just throwing up housing, three and four story townhousing, uh, two story apartment buildings. You know, that upper middle to upper middle class, lower, higher class housing, they're putting it on every square piece of land they can find. And in other places, suburban areas, um, like the house I have near North Carolina, they're throwing up subdivisions on every piece of farmland they can buy. These are economic indicators you got to pay attention to. But then when you fly into Detroit, like I did with the last company I worked for, they were uh, the headquarters were in Ann Arbor, and you fly into Detroit, and there's just giant patches of empty land in what was once the sprawling city of Detroit where so many houses are now gone and they've just had to tear them down or they burned down or whatever. Housing is an indicator you pay attention to for not just where the economy is going, but how people are doing and how the country is doing. So when you see a headline like this, your dollar for housing is only going half as far as it did even three years ago. That's a real number. And yeah, there's a little bit of clickbait in the headline, but this is a good example of turning down the noise and getting to something that is really important. Housing policy, zoning policy, economics, and a cohort of generations. We talk about millennials and boomers and Zoomers and all that. A lot of it's nonsense. But one thing that's true, every 10 to 15 years, you have a new cohort coming into the workforce and buy, needing to buy new homes and get their families started. That is vitally important to the country, the culture, the society, the economy, our politics. It affects absolutely everything. And every time you have a cohort that is very successful like that, the baby boomers post-World War II, very successful that, long periods of economic growth and stability in our country. And when you have cohorts that didn't get that, like the millennials are having trouble with right now, and they're becoming one of the largest cohorts we have demographically. You had the financial crisis of the late 2000s. You've had the COVID issues. You've had other economic issues. Now you got high inflation. That cohort not having that stability is going to ripple for decades to come. Be aware of it. Pay attention to it. Don't get caught up in the noise of it, but understand what's happening so we can discern the times we live in. An uneven economy, you can point to a lot of things, basic things like people don't have houses, people don't have steady careers. You're going to have some bumps in the economy for a long, long time to come. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's talk Taylor Swift. No, seriously, we got to talk about Taylor Swift because she's all over the news. She's all over my NFL games on Sunday now. Thank you, Travis Kelsey. Talk about that in a minute. But here's the thing. All the engagement people that really need engagement, they love Taylor Swift because Taylor Swift equals engagement. But is all that coverage fair? We're going to talk to Carolyn Bolton. She's a marketing director over at Donors Trust about Taylor Swift. She's writing in USA Today about it. We'll link to the piece. Carolyn, how are you, ma'am? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm just thrilled to talk Tay-Tay on the program, but it's my program. I get to do what I want. Look, I'm I'm not a Swifty, but I'm a girl dad, 
So I'm Swifty at Jace because I've had to deal with this for quite some time now. I like Taylor Swift. I think she's talented. She's obviously been record-breakingly successful in the music and entertainment business. Here's my thing. I don't care if you're conservative. I don't care if you're progressive. I don't care if you're libertarian. I don't care if you're a purple hippopotamus, whatever. I want consistency. Just tell me what you are. Be consistent in what you are. I'll adapt to it. I'll know what I'm dealing with and I'm dealing with you and we move along. I just don't like people that aren't consistent. I don't like people that are hypocritical. I don't like people that do posing like a lot of our you know, stars and political figures do. You did the actual research here. Taylor Swift, is she consistent with her beliefs? Because that's been the thing that the engagement folks, you know, those influencers have been slinging at her. I think she's been pretty consistent. But what does the data show when you actually dug into it? Well, yeah, so Taylor Swift, I mean, you look, you look at um, her values and how they've kind of evolved over the years. And it's clear, like, she's outspoken um, regarding the things she believes in. Um, but, there, you know, there's a, a writer on Bloomberg who said that, you know, Taylor Swift has not made a significant mark in the world of philanthropy. And it just was so disingenuous to me. Um, you know, the, the implication being that because she hasn't made public or splashy donations to Planned Parenthood or other woke charities, that somehow her philanthropy isn't authentic. It's not supportive of, you know, the, the Gen Z and millennials that, that kind of you know, launched her into superstardom. Um, but yeah, to me, it was just super disingenuous. Um, and her philanthropy, she's made a significant mark, uh, even, you know, even if it's not as woke as some people wish it would be. Uh, it's very um, indicative of her diverse audience and the following that she's built. Yeah, we've had some video of her. She's pretty private. She's very media savvy. So if she lets you see something in her personal life, it's because she wants you to see it. We had that video of her talking to her parents and I think one of her managers or something. She's in like a dressing room. That viral video that everybody talked about where she talked about supporting Biden and getting politically involved. And she's talking to her parents. You don't see that unless she wants you to see it. But I thought it was a pretty as authentic a moment as something that was in 4D HD with a camera curve can be. But I did think it was authentic. She's like, I don't really want to do this, but I feel like I have to do this and I speak. Whether I agree with her or not, I found it to be a genuine moment where she let folks in and say, this is why I'm doing this. And frankly, compared to the platform she has and what she could be doing, kind of basic baby step stuff. There's not, She's not throwing bombs out here or anything like that. Why does she get these people's goats so much? Now, I know the influencers do it just for the engagement. But other than whether you like her music or not, I don't find anything really disagreeable about her, which is one of the reasons she's so popular. She is pretty you know, boring would offend the peace, but she's down the middle. She knows how to be a public figure without really offending people, but still being kind of genuine to what she herself is. Is that a fair way to put it? Well, yeah, I think that's a great characterization. Um, yeah, she spoke out, like you said, about Biden um, during the election. Um, she, again, spoke out after Ruby Wade was overturned. Um, you know, she stopped short of making a donation to Planned Parenthood the way that Lizzo and Harry Styles did, at least a public one, as far as I know. Um, but yeah, overall, I think she's really true to her values um, and does a really good job uh, just trying to unify her audience versus making enemies where she doesn't need to. She does write songs about making enemies, though. Uh, sure. Carolyn Bolton's joining us. She wrote in USA Today. You brought up an interesting piece of this that I think got left out. Because, with you know, the Travis Kelsey and the NFL stuff and the Eras Tour is so huge right now. It's going to break every record for touring we've ever had. The movie's been out now, made a bunch of money. Talk about that FTX thing, because we know the FTX scam, one of the largest scam jobs we've ever seen in American, maybe world history. There's an interesting little side note to that where she was approached like a lot of other celebrities. She turned it down. You brought this up. This shows that, you know, this is more than just brand or image consciousness. She actually thinks about things like this. I think that's an important piece to understand when you're going to be talking about the public image and the philanthropy. This is somebody who knows themselves, but also thinks through things and doesn't just, obviously she doesn't need the money, but she does think these things through, it seems. Yes, it's, you know, and the fact that, yeah, she turned FTX down um, or, you know, new 
knew enough to ask questions. She's very financially savvy. She thinks through her decisions. Um, is That's what that indicates to me. Um, she's very thoughtful. She just doesn't make rash decisions. But yeah, FTX approached her. I think it was before her ears tour about doing partnering. And um, yeah, she had, she had knowledge enough to ask, you know, are these secure securities? And no, they weren't. Um, and so that partner fizzled, partnership fizzled. Um, or just never materialized. So I think this is a woman who's thought through her philanthropy um, and the ways that she wants to make an impact on her terms. What do you think her philanthropy? Because we we see the notes like um, one. Look, I used to work in the trucking industry. She gave all her truck drivers a massive bonus, and we're talking like thirty truck drivers for that Eras tour. Yep. Just little things like that. Hundred thousand dollars per. Yeah, you know, you see her doing stuff for her inner circle. You talk about some of her famous friends that she's done that this is just public stuff that we know of where she takes care of people. She's had kind of the same inner circle pretty much her entire career. Yeah. Like we mentioned, her family's still involved. She still talks things through with her parents. Um, she keeps a tight circle. What does that tell us about her? Because as you were writing about and looking at her, somebody that has the same group of people around them all the time kind of becomes indicative of this is somebody that takes care of the people around them that's important to them too. Not just money-wise, but they want to help her. Exactly. Yes, I think you map out her philanthropy and it's clear that she deeply cares about friendship. She cares about her family uh, and she cares about her fans. Uh, and that that is clear in the places that she has donated to and the people that she's helped. You know, she's helped friends who are in a bind. Uh, parents both struggled, battled cancer, and she donates uh, a lot of money to cancer charities or people who are likewise suffering from cancer. Um, and then and then her ears tour, donating to food banks along um, the ears route, the tour route is just, you know, it's a very timely, relevant donation to, to people in the communities that are supporting her um and you know she's in kind like lifting them up uh, which is a really remarkable thing and i think um it's clear that she's made a significant impact in the world of philanthropy even if yeah. she's not making these splashy woke donations yeah carolyn bolton joining us let's go to the other side of that uh, why do you think the right has turned on her the online right i don't think her fans that are just conservative or right-leaning or political, I don't think they've really done anything. But we've just seen an avalanche in right-wing media, conservative media. They've just been going after her. Now, you, look, you've been around. You've written Wall Street Journal, USA Today. You know how this game is. The contrarian opinion gets through to the editor fast. You know, negative engagement and outrage does really well. I know yeah. that's part of it, but that can't just be all of it. What is it about Taylor Swift that just yeah. fires people up so much, do you think? I know, you either love her or you hate her. Um, she's a lightning rod, like you said, outrage, um, outrage um, often works, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, I think, she, like we were talking about earlier, she's a woman who's authentic and true to her values. Uh, and she's not afraid to speak about those values um, publicly. And some people just simply disagree with her on a number of public policy issues. Um, and for that reason, I think they've, they've come out against her. Um, but overall, I mean, she's she a way of really unifying people otherwise. Yeah, Carolyn Bowen joining us. Okay, the important question here, because we're about laying out biases ahead of time, are you actually a Swifty? And did you come to this as a Swifty? Or did you get converted to being a Swifty through this process? Where are you at in your Taylor fandom? So I've always enjoyed her music, um, you know, especially as a young country singer, I, I love, I mean, I love her Speak Now album. Actually, I love Lover, really great. But yeah, I've come, I've become more of a Swifty as the outrage mill continues on. So yeah, I would call myself a Swifty. See, I think a lot of people are like that, though, because when you see the outrage meal and it, and it got really it's really gotten ridiculous over the Kel Travis Kelsey thing. And I'm still one of those things. I'm like, OK, these are two really media savvy people. The Kelsey family has a movie out. Taylor's got a movie out. And I think I think they may be playing with us a little bit there. We Like if they're in love, God bless. But I, I think they might be just having some fun with us, too. We'll see how it plays out. I think I saw a lot of people like that. It was almost like a turning point. It's like, okay, some of these influencers, they're just doing this to be obnoxious now. And it's not just their Taylor fandom. It's just some of this really, I think, started breaking through folks like, 
okay, this is just unfair. This is just people yelling at the clouds now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know why people get so wound up and waste so much energy over, over hating. But, you know, as she sings, haters going to hate, right? True. I was trying hard not to do any puns with the song titles, and you just went ahead and did All right, go ahead and give me a couple. People who just roll their eyes at Taylor Swift, give them a couple of songs to get into. They're probably not going to go sit through the movie. I did. I did it last weekend with my youngest daughter. Um, they probably didn't go to the heiress tour because nobody can afford that thing without taking out a second mortgage. Give them a couple of songs to kind of get into. Like, okay, if you've never given Taylor Swift a chance, give these couple things on your playlist a shot. Ooh, okay. So ours is probably my favorite Taylor Swift song. It's on her um, Speak Now album, like the deluxe edition. And then probably another one, um, Champagne Problems. Is, it's more of a deep cut, um, but I like that one too. Yeah, in the Ayers tour and on the movie, the Champagne Problems is actually one of the real big set pieces in the movie and on the tour. So that that's a fun thing. Uh, I'll be honest, I don't like, you know, I'm not a huge Taylor Swift fan, but I listen to it because the kids and such. I like Wildest Dreams. That's probably my favorite Taylor Swift song. I like Maroon off the new album, although I got to warn you, this is Taylor in her potty mouth era. So there's mm-hmm. some nasty words on there for those of you who want to get picky about that sort of thing. But I like Maroon, but Wildest Dreams is probably my favorite. I like the video too, but. I don't know. I just like that one. Uh, Carolyn Bolton, she is with Donors Choice. Let folks know where they can keep up with you. We're going to link to the whole piece. It's in USA Today. It'll be on the Substack, notesartel.substack.com. Make sure you read the whole thing. Click the link on that FTX story. Really interesting there. Carolyn, let folks know where they can keep up with you and follow you until we get you back on Hartel again. Sure. You can follow me at on Twitter at B-A-R Bolton, like a Michael, or you can visit um, the website, donorstrust.org. And uh, keep up to date on everything I'm doing now. We'll link to our social media and all that as well. Carolyn Bolton, thank you so much for the time. Hope you have a wonderful day. Appreciate it. Thanks, you too, Andrew. Thank you, ma'am. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. With Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab an extra latte. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. That'll do it for this edition of Bird Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the Twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of, things like that, and also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. we got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. 
So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you anything more than a click. Hertel.substack.com. We sure appreciate it. And follow us on social media, Hertel Show on the Twitter. Four for the Fire is my personal Twitter handle. No, we're not going to call it X. But if you could share us and let folks know that our programs are worth checking out, we sure would appreciate it. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you real soon for the next Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Hurt Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.